Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. G, and sitting with me across the vast distance of cyberspace is Dr. Rad. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. We're in for a thrilling time, I think, in this episode. So we're going to be looking at 431 BCE. And you might think to yourself, that doesn't sound very exciting. Just another number, but just you wait. Yes, join us for this episode as we continue to trace the history of Rome from the founding of the city. At the moment, predominantly with Livy by our side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, Dionysus of Halicarnassus, which is the main source that I've been reading for a long while now, mm. has dropped off the wagon and will remain missing for a few more years before finally disappearing altogether. Aww, that's so sad. <laughs> all right, well, before we get into 431 and all the excitement that awaits us, Dr. G, should we do a brief recap to see what was happening in Roman history in our previous episode? Mm. So in our previous episode, we covered two years. We did. And it was 433 and 432. And realistically, it was mostly about a pestilence and the getting over of said pestilence. Something I think we can all relate to. Yes, yes. Um, touches the heartstrings, that does. Um, Indeed. And Rome gets through it, but it seems that there might be rising tensions from their neighbours, uh, people who are seeing Rome's uh, malaise as an opportunity, potentially. Indeed. We've got the Volscians and the Aquians rearing their ugly heads, and they seem to be potentially allying with the Etruscans, more specifically, perhaps the people from Vey, because Rome has had some beef with Vey in the past decade over territory. Yeah, and Vey is super close to Rome, just a little bit to the north, and so it's perhaps unsurprising that these two are often at loggerheads with each other. Yes, absolutely. So we've got that lingering in the background. We've got Livy valiantly trying to continue to forge a conflict within Rome itself between the Patricians and the Plebeians in our previous episode. So let's see how it all plays out, shall we, in 431 BCE.
431 BCE. What a time to be alive in ancient Rome. We have consuls this year. We do. In case you have forgotten, it was thought that with potential trouble with external places on the horizon, only consuls would do because... God forbid you have military tribunes with consular power and one of them's a plebeian. I mean, it's clearly going to result in a defeat. <laughs> we can't take that risk. And Rome doesn't. They put in Titus Quintius, son of Lucius, grandson of Lucius, Poenus Cincinnatus, who is a patrician and, yes, is related to the famous Cincinnatus. I was going to say, it's a famous name, it's a famous name. It's a famous family, and this appears to be one of his sons. Okay, excellent. And then we've got another famous name, I believe, is our other consul. We do. We have a Gaius or a Nias, debate rages, <laughs> Julius Mento. I'm sorry, did you just offer me a breath mint? <laughs> <laughs> I did. It's delicious. <laughs> what a weird cognomen. Uh, yes, and I'd love to tell you more about it, but I'm out of my rabbit hole of cognomens now, ah. so I'm good. I don't have anything to tell you on that. <laughs> I can actually tell you what it means, Dr. G. Oh, goody. It means long chin. Oh, goodness. Well, well, well. What happens when uh, a mento and a flaconator end up in the same room? <laughs> I feel like it would be something very pepperminty that would happen. Mm. But that's just a guess. Long chins always remind me of peppermint. That's yeah, true. Yeah, that's just a guess. Strong flavors, definitely. The fresh maker. Yes, <laughs> exactly. All right. So, I mean, right, we've focused on Mento, but it's really the Gaius Julius element of the name that uh, perhaps would ring bells uh, for everybody. And it's not our guy. We're way too early for him. Yes, and just in terms of the debate raging around his prenomen, so apparently... Nias is not a name commonly used by the Julians as against, and that's why I think there is some debate about that first name. Whereas Gaius, we know, is mm. definitely used by them. Definitely, definitely. But as a foreshadowing of uh, the year ahead, I've got some other uh, people holding power that are perhaps worthy of note. Uh, we do get a dictator in this oh, year we do. as far as i'm aware we know that the 430s is a time for dictators they are literally flooding us with dictators at the moment it's a stunning time to be a dictator it is. and we have aulus postumius tubertus mm, a familiar name again the postumii indeed i don't know if we've seen this specific guy before but we've definitely seen the family. oh yeah just the family yeah and if you have a dictator you can almost bet your sunshine that you're also going to have a master of the horse. Indeed. And this is Lucius Julius Volspici, or Volpisci, Iulus. Oh, okay. Another patrician. Yeah. Is he related, do you think, to one of our consuls? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Okay. I mean, they, they come from the same gens, mm. so, I mean, they must be extended relations of some kind. Yes, yes. Um, but all of the other names don't really match up. So that suggests they come from different family lines. Mm. Um, but this guy we have seen before. He was apparently a military tribune with consular power in 438. Okay, okay. 
so I don't remember him, but uh, we're getting to that period where all Roman names start to sound the same. So <laughs> we're only now getting to that period. We're only now getting to that period. <laughs> just now, just recently. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. We have some legates as well. So I think this is an indication. Usually we don't find out who the legates are. They are a military, a sub sort of military commander. So we don't tend to hear about them. They're usually around, but something has to sort of be quite narratively significant for the legates to get mentioned by name. And we have a few of them mentioned by name this year. So that gives us a bit of a heads up that there's something on the horizon. So we have Marcus Fabius Vibulanus. You may have heard of him before. Military Tribune with Consular Power in 433. Ah, fabulous Fabian. Yes. Marcus, we think. Marcus Gaganius Masarinus. I've definitely heard of him before. He was consul in 447, 443, and 437. Yes, yes. I remember so it well. Lots of, <laughs> lots of consulships under his belt. So... This guy comes with a huge sort of pedigree. So a legate is not as high up in the in the chain of greatness as being a consul, but this guy would be highly respected as a military commander under a consul. Absolutely. And then we have Spurius Postumius Albus Regilensis. Uh, I've definitely heard that name before, yeah. <laughs> sounds super familiar because just a couple of years ago, he was also a military tribune with consular power. So we've got a whole bunch of legates who have previously held command, mm, essentially. Okay. Um, so they're bringing in the big guns. And that's not all. I'm turning the page in my notes. <laughs> we have Quintus Sulpicius Camarinus Praetextatus, who was a consul or military tribune with consular power in 434 so he was from the year of chaos as it shall henceforth the year of chaos (laughs) yeah where we don't know who was who holding what which position necessarily it was so bad exactly exactly (laughs) all right dr g well i think this is our cast our cast of thousands (laughs) yeah and i uh, i hope listeners that you've been paying careful attention because all of those names uniquely matter (laughs) (laughs) exactly they're not at all interchangeable (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let me tell you what these guys are getting up to and why there are so many names mentioned specifically in the year 431. So, as we know, war is looming. I guess that means I have to go back to my British accent from... War was on the horizon. Exactly, it's not looking good, chaps. Quickly, we've got to hold a levy, goddammit. (laughs) Roll up, roll up. Join the greatest army on earth. Your country needs you. Yes, Yes, that's exactly what happens. So a levy is held by the consuls and it's held under Alex Socrata because it's generally held to be the most effective way of gathering soldiers. Why do you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Because whoever did not obey the call to enlist was considered sucker to the gods or forfeit to the gods. So... Wow. Yeah, this this ties into the idea that fighting was kind of a religious duty of a Roman citizen, particularly, I suppose, at this point in time when Rome does not have a standing army. Yeah, a service to the gods. Um, well, it, it makes sense in many respects. I mean, we've got a lot of priesthoods that are connected with either being able to read the signs to indicate whether it's an appropriate time to go to war. You've also got 
the Fereales who go out to ensure that the war is just in the eyes of the gods. There is a lot of sense in which Rome doesn't engage in any military action unless they're really certain that things are looking appropriate through a divine perspective. So you certainly don't want men in your ranks who are not approved from divine sanction. Indeed, exactly. So what's starting to happen is that the Acreans and the Volscians, they certainly postpone for a war for a year, but they're very punctual when that year rolls around because they are getting ready. They have put forward very strong armies from both of their locales. They have met up at Mount Algidus, or Algidus, which we have mentioned several times as a point of conflict. It just seems to be the place where battles happen. <laughs> but they have set up separate camps, so they're not in, they're close to each other, but they're not entirely in the one camp. That will become important later on, which is why I'm specifically mentioning it now. And then they start to drill their men hard. So it's train, train, train. The Romans presumably can see this and appreciate it because it makes them more concerned about the situation, according to Livy. So concerned that it's time for a dictator. Oh, wow. That, that just happened all so quickly. They're like, I saw them training over there and I'm now really quite concerned and a consul is not going to be enough for this situation. I know, I really feel like if I were to characterise Rome in the 430s, at least as it's coming through in the sources, it's that once they pop that cherry with one dictator, they can't help but keep going for it again and again. It's just like, you know, it's become a bad habit really. It's a reflex. Well, this is interesting, actually, because I've just started reading Wilson's book on the evolution of the dictator. Mm. And part of the argument that he is setting up is to assert that the dictator has always been a feature of the Roman Republic and is indeed, you know, it comes into being with the Republic itself very early on in the piece. And so in a way, in this early period, it's part of the way that Romans do business. If they see a situation where they're like, no, no, we need one person in charge for this, even if it's just for a limited time. They have that position in reserve, knowing that they could use it at any time. Oh, sure. So it's this kind of part of the way that they, maybe their business as usual practice in this early period of the Republic, because we're certainly entering into this phase where we're seeing a lot of them, and we're going to continue to see a lot of them for quite some time. Oh, yeah, and look... I suppose it's a bit like if you're in a plane and the plane starts to get into trouble, you're not going to be like, wait, wait, let's see how this plays out. You're going to pull the parachute, goddammit, get the hell out of there. So I understand the instinct. But it does seem like in the 430s they're particularly prone to calling on a dictator. I guess it ties into this bigger picture that we've often talked about, that Rome is not in its best way at this point in time. It's not, it's not its best self in this time in the Republic. No, and it's really, I think, part of what we're learning through this process of the 430s and even the previous decade and potentially the decades to come, I haven't read that far ahead, I'm trying to keep it fresh for myself, (laughs) um, is that Rome is really trying to establish itself and it's a consolidation period and this means conflict because they need to figure out where they sit in the pecking order of central Italy and... It's just going around in circles. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's definitely what we can see. Now, interestingly, in the future, of course, it'd be the Senate that 
always gets the power to decide when is Rome officially in a state of emergency. At this point in time, although the Senate are the people that are like, you know what, I think we need a dictator. They're training awfully hard. <laughs> um, it's not like their official right at this point in time as it would kind of become their, their business, if you like, in a few centuries time. Now, it might seem a little bit odd that the Romans are so nervous at this point in time because of course, they have trounced the Aquians and the Volscians countless times in the past. I mean, I actually honestly could not tell you how many times we have related a story where the Aquians and the Volscians have been defeated by Rome. And look, and some of them have been at Mount Algaidum as well, yeah. Mount Algaidus, which is this spot in the Alban Hills to the southeast of Rome, which is traditionally linked to Aquian territory. So it's it's not like this hasn't, it feels like we're a bit on a repeat. We're like a DJ doing that. <laughs> and it's like, here we are again, guys. It's uh, Mount Aguinas and who knows what's going to happen here, but probably Rome. <laughs> exactly. Well, the reason why they're a little bit more nervous than usual, perhaps in spite of their amazing track record, is that not only do those Aquins and Volskians seem to be training very hard. I don't know what that means, but... They are. They're doing the whole... I hope this means that they have their shirts I think on. it does. I think they're doing the pumping iron montage, you know. <laughs> it's all looking pretty scary. Da -da -da. Yeah. Da -da -da. Exactly, yeah. I have the tigers playing, you know. They're running up and downstairs. <laughs> it's not good. Anyway, on top of that, though, of course, we have to remember what Rome has just emerged from, which is a pretty serious plague. A lot of young Roman men have died during this time, so I guess Rome feels like it's not at full strength. And the ones that are left have only got like little chicken legs. They're like, I haven't been able to get back to leg day. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not feeling confident going into this. These thighs are not intimidating enough. Mm -mm -mm. No, but, and this is my favorite detail. And I, I'm so excited to share this with you. The, the little cherry on top of why the Romans are a bit more nervous than usual, why they call on a dictator, is that the consuls do not get on at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they voted these two guys in and they're like, and these guys are like, nah, can't stand it. Yeah. The man's a jerk. Yeah, they're like the odd couple, but without the sweet sentimental moments where actually they do care about each other. <laughs> okay, so they don't get along and it seems like they're going to be unable to come to any unified decision if it comes to war. Exactly. Now, this is another little intriguing detail that Livy throws out there. He reports that some writers have recorded that the consuls actually went to war and fought a battle at Mount Algaidus and were defeated, hence the dictator being appointed. But that's all he'll give me. So I'm using my flesh rabbits. Some writers. Who, Livy? Who? It sounds pretty awkward for the consuls, though. Like they tried to get their shit together even though they didn't like each other and it really didn't work out. Now everyone's like, you know what? Just go away. Well... There is one thing that they agree upon, one thing, and that is no dictator, no dictator, no dictator. <laughs> We're the consuls. We want to be in charge. <laughs> this is going to be a real slap in the face, I think, for Cincinnatus, son of the legendary Cincinnatus, twice dictator. I know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, like yeah, they're resisting. The consuls are like, no, no, no dictator. We don't want a dictator. No, stop talking to a Senate. We don't want to hear it right now but the information about the Aquians and the Volscians and their forces is just getting more and more concerning 
Rome is getting increasingly worried. The consuls are still not listening to the advice of the Senate. The reporters on the ground at Mount Agaitis are drawing sketches of how well uh, muscled the enemy is and sending those sketches back to Rome and people are getting increasingly concerned, being like, those guys are developing muscle at a rate I've never seen before. They're getting bigger day by day. We have to do something before they explode. Exactly. We don't go to battle. They're training. <laughs> they are so much better than they need to be. They're going to be unstoppable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so at this point in time, one Quintus Servilius Priscus, who was a very respected elite Roman man for the previous positions that he had held within the state, appeals to none other than the Tribune of the Plebs. Yeah, that's right. A patrician turning to the Tribune of the Plebs. Desperate times indeed. He says, you guys are annoying. Can you please be annoying right now and use your authority to force the consuls to name a dictator? Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. I know. Now the Tribunes, of course, say, hey, people need us. We're wanted. They like me. They really like me. And they see this as a golden opportunity to increase their own power because the tribunes are the worst. Yeah, I know, I know. The tribunes are the worst. So they start chatting amongst themselves, being like, conspire, conspire, conspire. How are we going to use this to our advantage? They then declare that the tribunes all think that the consuls should obey the Senate and that if they keep resisting, they should be thrown in prison. Ah, that'll teach them. Yeah, absolutely. The consuls, understandably, are outraged that the tribunes have been used against them. They're like, there is no bigger slap in the face than you guys turning to our arch nemesis, the tribune of the plebs. (laughs) We're like, this is insulting and I also do not want to go to jail. Well, perhaps they have a point in the sense that they're like, if you actually allow this to happen, like allow the consuls to be thrown in prison for not doing what they're told by other people like the Tribune of the Plebs, then you are just undermining the authority of the office. Now, I do hate the patricians, but they do have a point about a dangerous precedent because we know that the Romans are all about precedent. Ah, yes. This is really interesting, actually, because this is going to feed into the one story that I have for this year which doesn't come until much later on. Okay. Anyway, so it's finally decided by lot. I mean, after that objection is noted, they're like, great, whatever. They decide by lot that Titus Quintius, as in Cincinnatus 3.0, is going to be the one who's going to be allowed to pick the dictator. And so he turns to Aulus Posthumius Tibertus, who was his father-in-law, who was very well respected and very strict, apparently. Mm, yes. Has a bit of a reputation. Yes. And he, of course, then chooses Lucius Julius as his master of the horse, as you said earlier. Mm. Now, I'm just going to flag here. There have been questions raised about the legitimacy and timing of this dictatorship. Did it happen in this year? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it was a year earlier. Maybe it was invented. <laughs> This is a chaotic time for the chronology. There is no doubt about that. So it wouldn't surprise me that everything that we're sort of talking about that we're assigning to particular years could be anywhere between a particular decade. Yeah. To be honest. I think this stuff happened, but 
yes, I can see that the timing might be the issue. I think this story about Tubertus certainly has some legs. Yes. And there is some lingering uh, sort of aftermath of this uh, of this whole situation. So even if it's not in this year, um, I'm just going to foreshadow that it, it seems like people across the board believe that it happened. I agree. I agree. Anywho, so a levy is declared. And this is a serious levy. This is not just like your regular levy. This is one where all legal business is stopped in the city because everyone should be doing their bit to get Rome ready for war. In fact, it's so serious that men who might normally be able to claim some sort of exemption from military service for whatever reason are told, we don't have time to deal with your cases, buddy. You're just going to have to put your name down and turn up on the day. If you don't, you're going to be treated like a deserter. What about my tennis elbow? <laughs> Too bad. I can't possibly swing a sword. <laughs> Too much time with the courts, pal. Get your ass in line. <laughs> yes. So basically because this is like a state of emergency, no cases of exception are going to be considered. Not even like after everything's said and done. It's not like you can turn up with your little medical note and be like, I know I didn't turn up, but my doctor did say that I can't have balls fly at my face. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, they also they also enroll people from the Hernetians and the Latins. They're allies. Classic allies. Yeah, classic yeah. allies. Exactly. Now, they then kind of divide and conquer. So, Gnaeus Julius, the consul, and Lucius Julius, the master of the horse, are both assigned to Rome. So that makes sense. Split the consuls up if they don't get along. <laughs> now, this is supposed to ensure that if there are any sudden issues that arise, they'll be able to be handled by these two guys who are being left in charge. And their main priority is obviously to make sure that the needs of the army are being met and that the city are supporting that goal. So far, so good. All makes sense. Exactly. Now, at this point in time, our dictator promises that there will be games, glorious games, if Rome wins. And he is basically repeating a promise apparently made by the Pontifex Maximus at the time, one Aulus Cornelius Cossus, perhaps? Okay, yeah, okay. Who said there would be great games if Rome was victorious. So we're all on board with the whole, let's, let's celebrate if we win. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Now, the dictator... Posthumius, he splits his army up with the consul that he's been paired with, who is, uh, I don't really know what to call him. I don't want to call him Cincinnatus. I guess Quintius. I'll call him. You could call him Poenus because that's one of his names and it doesn't come up, it hasn't come up very much so far. No, it's actually an odd name sideways. Hmm. It, it has something to do with some connection with Carthage or being a Carthaginian or something like that. Yeah, so I mean, maybe call him Poenus Cincinnatus. Okay, Poenus Cincinnatus. So they've divided up the army and they're going out to deal with the Aquians and the Volscians. Now, the Romans had noticed the way that the Aquians and Volscians were camped separately, but close together. So they do the same thing. So you've got Postumius with his own camp and Quinctius Poenus with his own camp. Now, the locations that Livy gives me apparently do not make sense. I haven't stepped this out personally. I am using Ogilvy, an academic who apparently knows a bit more than I do about geography. So Livy says that Posthumius was closer to Tusculum and that Quintius 
Poenus was nearer to Lanuvium. However, apparently Lanuvium is separated by the Alban Hills from Tusculum and therefore not really near the site of battle. So don't really know what that means. That's, yeah. that's fine. It's all relative, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, who knows what this means. I think this requires us to take a trip to Rome in order to investigate the geography for ourselves. Absolutely. Patreons, get on it. <laughs> we need to sort out this geography. Once the Roman camps are set up, small-scale skirmishes begin between the Romans and the Aquian Volscian forces. And Posthumus is like, yeah, you know what? Why not? Why not? Skirmish away. Go ahead, indulge yourself, knock yourself out. You know what? Maybe this is the way that we're going to just win the war. So he's just like, yep, this is how we're going to do it. Just like low-level, low-pressure engagements. Slow and steady. Yeah, and it does seem to have that kind of effect because eventually the Aquians and the Volscians become increasingly desperate. So much so that they decide to hatch an evil plan. (laughs) They're going to ambush the consul's camp in the night time. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. Unfortunately for them, the alarm is raised before they do that much damage. It's like a classic comedic situation, being like, you know what we'll do? We'll do this. Oh no, the alarm system. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like like they they've you know, they've made some headway, but not much. So Quintius Poenus, he springs into action, he immediately is like, more guards, more security, quickly! Schnell, schnell. And so everybody springs into action. And of course, our dictator, Posthumius, immediately sends over reinforcements to help out his colleague in arms. And they are put under the command of a lieutenant, Spurius Posthumius Albus, our old friend. Oh. Yeah. So Posthumius and part of his army, they now move themselves to a location where they can't be seen during the battle that is going on. So this way, I think they're setting themselves up, obviously, for like an ambush of the enemy at an opportune moment. Sneaky. Where did those guys go? I don't know. (laughs) They're just gone. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, of course, since he's no longer present in the camp that he had set up, he has to leave behind a lieutenant in charge, and this is Quintius Sulpicius. All right. Yeah, so there's one of our other lieutenants. <laughs> now he's another lieutenant. We're, we're, we're ticking them off the we're list. We're ticking them off. Right, yeah, here right. comes another one. Yep, yep. Here comes another one. Marcus Fabius, our fabulous Fabian, another lieutenant. Mm. He is placed in charge of the cavalry, but nice. he is ordered to wait until daybreak to do anything because it's way too hard to use your cavalry in the nighttime. Yeah, do not charge the horses in the dark. Yeah. It will go wrong. Yeah. So Posthumius is obviously justifying the choice of himself as dictator because he's just doing everything right. He then decides he's going to actually attack the enemy camp because, of course, they have depleted the forces in their camp in order to attack the Roman camp of the consul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Clever. Yeah. So once again, I've got another lieutenant for you. Marcus Giganius and some of the cohorts are sent to ambush the camp. And Giganius finds that the people at the camp were completely fixated on like what was happening with the attack on the consul's camp. So they're sitting there eating popcorn. They've got their 3D glasses on. <laughs> they weren't really paying attention to the security of their own campsite. So when he attacks, he seems to take it pretty easily. 
and is therefore able to send up a smoke signal that he had prearranged with Posthumius to be like, job done. Tick, tick. Nice. Yeah. 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 So Posthumius... So far, so smooth. Yeah, so Posthumius sends out word to everybody... It's all good, everybody. The camp's been captured. We're making great progress here. And then, daybreak, which means enter the cavalry. And I was going to say, the charge of the horse. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also, our friend Quinctius Poenus, he now feels that he can properly engage with the enemy. I think he feels that things have definitely turned in their favour. Daybreak, it's a bit easier, obviously, you know, to deal with the situation. And Posthumius, of course, is going to ambush the enemy from behind. So it's looking pretty grim for the Aquians and the Volskians. I mean, they seem to be trapped from a lot of different directions. I was going to say, this is more than a pincer movement. They've got them surrounded. However, it's time for a hero, Dr. G. A what? A hero. (laughs) We We don't have one already? No, a hero on the other side. Oh. Yeah. So, one Volskian called Vettius Messius. <laughs> Vettius Messius. Amazing. Yeah. I love this guy already. I know. So, Ogilvy has suggested that he is crafted very much in the uh, form of a Homeric hero. And so, he steps in. He's not... Maybe it's because he's so well-muscled. <laughs> he's been doing a lot of training. Anyway, so he steps in. He's not a super elite guy. He's not from the most powerful Volskian family you've ever heard of, but he has earned respect from his people through his many impressive deeds, which Livy does not take the time to tell me about. Damn it. Yeah. But he is the one that starts rallying the Aquians and the Volskians. He's like, come on, guys, we can't give in. I know things look desperate, but this is not the time to surrender. We have to fight on. Now, whilst he might be a bit of a Homeric hero type character that's stepping into our story here, Ogilvy thinks that he is a genuine person, or at least like there's some basis for him in reality, because Messius is apparently an Oscan name. Mm. Yeah, it's like a it's like related to the name Metius, which we've seen before, like Medius Fufedius, another favorite name of ours from our past episode um, and you can apparently find the name Vettius in Etruria and also Sabine country oh interesting okay so he's got a name that's not it doesn't sit in within the sort of like the Roman history of names it sits in that surrounding area of Italy it so you know if they've made him up at least they got the detail right about where his name might have come from exactly so, the fight against the Romans is now renewed because they have their hero standing up for them. I need a hero. Yes, exactly. So they start attacking the Romans who are under our friend, I'm just going to call him Albus, <laughs> the other posthumous, because otherwise it's way too confusing. So our friend Albus is being attacked and the Romans are actually being driven back. Such is their fervour in this fight. But this is when... The dictator Posthumius's men show up and there's really fierce fighting happening. The Romans are determined, but Messius is there and they're just as determined. It's, oh, it's crazy, Dr. G. So many people get hurt. So many people die. This is the mark of a great battle. And Roman leaders even get hurt. 
So it would seem... Oh, that's rare. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So it would seem that our Lieutenant Posthumius Albus is the only one who is sort of taken from the battle because his head has been badly injured by a stone. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. All right. <laughs> the dictator, Posthumius, he's fighting on, but he's received a pretty serious shoulder injury. And Fabius, and I, I don't really understand how this works, and to be honest, I don't want to have it explained to me. Fabius, apparently, his thigh is, has somehow been injured in a way that's pinning him to his horse. Oh. Yeah. That, oh, that's not good. No, I don't... I'm Not good for him and not good for the horse. I'm kind of hoping that means the horse gently fell over, but I don't think that's the case. And Quintius Poenus has sustained a serious injury to one of his arms. I actually think that Livy means that he's lost one of his arms. Well, that is pretty serious. Now, apparently, this is an, uh, this whole episode bears an uncanny resemblance to some of the happenings of the Iliad. Mm. So I'm once again going to cite Ogilvy, who's highlighted that the injury sustained in the arm by Quintius Poenus is very much like one sustained by Agamemnon, whereas the injury sustained by Fabius with the whole leg thing and being pinned, that is like Diomede. And Ulysses' damaged side and shoulder is also very similar to the other mention we have to the, the shoulder injury. And Hector was the one that got hit in the head with a stone and taken from the battlefield in this particular battle. Now, I don't want to ruin this theory because obviously Ogilvy's an excellent scholar and bless his soul, uh, he was with us for too short a time. But when you're in an ancient battle and you're on the battlefield and you've got your ancient weapons and you've got your horses and you've got your rocks, how similar over time are the injuries likely to be i hear what you're saying i just thought i'm gonna flag it because it does seem like a very strange coincidence that we've got all these elite men on the battlefield and the injuries that they sustain are very much like this particular battle in the iliad <laughs> yeah yeah i hear you i hear you um i'm just gonna i'm gonna maintain my uh my small dose of skepticism <laughs> oh oh for sure yeah no for sure I totally get where you're coming from, but yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like... Is Livy trying to tell us that this battle is equivalent to the Iliad? <laughs> no, I just think, I think that Livy has a tendency to make these Republican battles much more epic than they actually were. <laughs> I see, yeah. I see. I think that's definitely the case. Anywho, so... Messi is keeping up the fighting along with his band of courageous youths from the Volscians. They end up trampling over the carcasses of slain Romans in their battle to make it back to the Volscian camp because the Romans had seemingly captured the Aquian camp previously. Of course, they are pursued by the Romans. So they are followed by the dictator and the other Roman forces where another fierce and full-on battle ensues at the camp itself. And it's apparently at this moment that Quintius Poenus throws his standard into the stockade of the camp, encouraging the Romans to go and fetch. Go get it, boy. 
<laughs> the Romans love that kind of thing. We've seen some examples of this before where it's like, you know, there's nothing quite like holding on to the standard. And I know that Livy will be all across those kinds of narratives as well due to later moments in history. Exactly. And finally, this is apparently what enables them to break into the camp from one direction and then from another direction. You've got the Romans making headway under the dictator. And this is where the Volskians just give up. They throw aside their weapons and they're like, you win. We surrender. We give up. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, this is a bad time. It's like, so they're surrounded and they they give up. They do. So mm. the camp is taken. Sadly, the men who are captured are sold into slavery. Although Livy has an intriguing detail that senators were not sold into slavery. Mm. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. Um, but what do we know about messius then is he sold into slavery is he a senator of <laughs> alas i do not know dr g his fate is lost to history it's a very messius affair all round. it is indeed so the romans capture a lot of booty because they've taken these two camps they give a portion to their allies the latins and the hernetians Mostly stuff that seemingly was taken from them in the first place, but I guess it's the thought that counts. Here, have this back. Yeah. The rest is sold at auction by Posthumius. Posthumius then leaves Quintius Poenus in charge of the camp and he goes back to Rome to do the right thing because, of course, he is an all-round awesome guy and lay down his power as dictator. Now that mission accomplished... I've done the thing and I no longer need to be the supreme leader of all of Rome. Exactly. Now, there is a weird little postscript to this whole affair, which is that there is a possibility that Aulius Posthumius, our dictator's son, had been a part of this conflict. Ooh, ooh, I have a story on this. I'll jump in and then... Potentially, you'll just correct me anyway, because my source, <laughs> my source, I don't have many sources, but the sources okay. that I do have suggest something really quite interesting. So this is coming from Valerius Maximus, um, mm. who sort of compiles lots of interesting tidbits of the past. And he talks about Posthumius Tiburtus, this dictator, really particular name. So he stands out in any material he appears in as being like one of the great dictators and really sort of amps up this guy and I, I can't I will read out the quote I think because it is there's a lot of flourish here which I think is worth noting so there I too Posthumius Tiburtus and Manlius Torquatus another guy that comes up later in history strictest guardians of warlike concerns I feel hesitation as I include you in memorial narratives because I perceive that overwhelmed by the weight of the glory you have deserved, I shall reveal the insufficiency of my abilities rather than present your virtue in its proper light. So he's kind of like, I don't think I can tell this story and do it justice. This is how great you are. For you, dictator Posthumius, you had a son, Aulus Posthumius, whom you had begotten to propagate the succession of your line and innermost rights, whose infant blandishments you had fostered in your bosom with kisses. Taught him letters as a boy, arms as a young man, blameless, brave, 
loving you as he loved his country. But because he went forth from his post and routed the enemy of his own motion and not by your bidding, you ordered the victor to be beheaded and your fortitude availed to the using of your parental voice for the execution of this command. For I am well assured that your eyes, overspread with darkness in broadest day, could not look upon the might work of your spirit. So like we've got this story where it's like his son is part of the command structure somehow in this battle, and we don't have him listed anywhere in the official records, but apparently sees an opportunity takes the initiative as a commander and because he wasn't given the direct order by the dictator, his father, he shouldn't have executed. He shouldn't have gone forward with, with moving into the battle. And because he comes back victorious, maybe the son thinks, you know, all will be forgiven. You know, all I did was see an opportunity and go for it. And isn't that, you know, the mark of Weirtos of a Roman military commander? And the answer to that is, very much not. Everything is about the structure of command and the structure of command must be preserved at all times. And it becomes the duty of the dictator to then perform the order to execute his own son. Which Ugh. is horrifying. Just like Brutus. Ugh. Well, I feel like this is kind of the moment where we can see how at the end of the regal period where we have that situation with Lucretia upholding what is this sort of ideal feminine virtue within the constructs of patriarchy and the toxicity of that moment we can see the same sort of toxic element of Roman patriarchy now playing out and how it works for the men because this is a moment where a military commander having won the day his son has contributed to that, but because it hasn't happened in the right sequence, he has to perform this execution. And it's a tragedy all around. Absolutely. So that's pretty much the story that I get as well, that Posthumius, who obviously has this connection, this family connection to the great Posthumius who had helped to secure that victory at Regulus and You've also got, obviously, other posthumii involved in the battle. But yes, uh, in this moment of triumph, he has to come home and execute his son by having him beheaded because he left his post when he was specifically ordered not to. The only detail that I can add on is that Livy does not believe that this is the case. Now, I love his reasoning for it. And okay, yes, this this is the translator talking, but I think it captures... I'm going to run with it. He says that no one wants to believe this story and the diversity of opinion allows one to reject it. (laughs) Is this Libby not naming you sources again? It is, but I just love the idea that, look, everybody has an opinion about this story and we all think Postumius is an amazing guy and nobody wants to believe that he would execute his own son. So let's just say it didn't happen. (laughs) But the, I don't want to believe. <laughs> yeah, the, one of the reasons that he cites is that there is a similar story, as you alluded to, which we'll come to again later on, with a guy called Titus Manlius. So Titus Manlius, um, his, his son had also defied his father's orders and entered into a fight when he wasn't supposed to. And even though he won the fight, his dad felt it was necessary to 
assert the authority of a consul and therefore had him bound to a stake and his head cut off. And this therefore gave rise to a particular saying about manly and discipline. Now Livy thinks that, I guess because this happened later perhaps, that it wouldn't make any sense for them to have the saying of manly and discipline if Posthumius was the one who did it first. And also Manlius was known to be so strict uh, that he was given the surname Imperiosus, Imperiosus, or the Despotic. And Posthumius wasn't given anything like that. So even though he was known to be like strict and stern as a Roman man was supposed to be, particularly if he's in a position of authority, maybe he didn't go quite that far. Yeah, it's, I, I wonder then when where the story kind of derives from and wonder if maybe what we're getting here is, and this is just pure speculation, there's no way to prove this one way or the other, whether this is part of a family story of the Postumii that is told amongst themselves in order to explain the death of a young man somewhere in their line um, and that somehow that's worked its way into sort of a greater imagination at some point um, but maybe doesn't make it into all of the records there's definitely confusion about it and so i wouldn't be surprised as you say if this is some sort of family law or oral history or something like that well all i can say is that valerius maximus clearly leans into the narrative (laughs) and gets super emotional in his recount of it so Definitely one of the people that's sort of sitting on the opposite side of the fence to Livy on this one. Although I think they do share in common their admiration for Posthumius, this particular Posthumius, amongst other Posthumiuses. (laughs) Um, So I do have a tiny little bit of detail to finish off the year, which is hilariously anticlimactic, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. So now that all this is all wrapped up, Gnaeus Julius comes back, And he makes the official dedication to the Temple of Apollo, which had been promised to the god back in 433, allegedly, when there was that year of really bad plague. Now, he did not wait for his colleague, Quictus Poenius, to come back for them to draw lots about who had the right to do the dedication, because Quinctius, of course, is still out minding the camp that was left behind by the dictator. These two really don't get along, do they? <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, is Quintius upset when he comes back and finds that this is what has happened. Because of course, you can't undo a dedication of a temple. Yeah, if the gods say it's okay to do it, you go ahead with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, awkward. <laughs> yeah, so he therefore makes a formal complaint to the Senate who do nothing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, which I just thought, again... Sometimes, even in the midst of doing something, it's not every day that someone these days would dedicate a temple. And yet, the toxic workplace, the (laughs) HR that does nothing. (laughs) I can't believe you would undermine me like that. I'm going to put into a complaint. Yeah, Why have I never heard back? (laughs) Indeed. So I thought that was just a hilarious little... uh, Side note to, uh, to wrap up the year of 431 before we head into... The partial pick! Alright, Dr. G, tell us what the partial pick is all about. Oh, the partial pick. Well, we evaluate Rome by its own criteria, which means sometimes they do fabulously and sometimes they do terribly. They can win up to 
50 golden eagles across five categories out of 10 each. So first cab off the rank is military clout. Oh yeah. I mean, this has got to be a high one, I think. They did rout them in the end after fierce fighting in many quarters. And they don't really seem to have ever put a foot wrong. That's true. They hid the cavalry. That was a good move. Yep, sneak attacks, working as a team. Yeah, throwing a standard into a camp. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, despite, I mean, all of the commanders seem to get injured in fantastically Homeric ways, but aside from that, all good. I mean, as long as the scars are on the front, still okay. Absolutely. So is it a 10 or is that too high? No, I think it might be a 10 because everybody loves this dictator. It seems like the legacy of the narrative is like, this guy was great. Yeah. Okay. So we're on a 10. Good start. Or we've already beaten our previous goal. Let's just stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Diplomacy. I think we have agreed in the past that when war is happening, it tends to imply that diplomacy is not. But they do give the spoils to the Latins and the Hanusians that were their spoils in the beginning, that seems a pretty nice thing to do. I guess there's a certain diplomacy involved in that. But I, again, I'm only going to give them a one, Dr. G. <laughs> <laughs> Always having to convince you on the diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're not a very diplomatic people. They're just not. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Expansion. No. I mean, they're, they're just fighting, I think, a defensive war at this point in time. Yeah, there's no claiming of territory, really. No. Uh, Weirtus. Yes, I think incredible, definitely, yes. yes. Incredible amounts of Weirtus on display. Yeah. Wounded shoulders, being pinned to horses, <laughs> conking a stone in the head. It's all <laughs> happening. And also, that final tragic story, whether we believe it or not, is actually a huge example of the way that Romans think about Weirtus as well. Yeah. Like, what is the most important thing for a Roman man and part of it is to prioritize Rome over anything else. And there's nothing more precious than a son. Mm. Yeah. So that that is a big thing to do. Yeah. And it seems that like it was super important that he did it in order to maintain the structures as they stand. So is that going to be a 10 out of 10 again? I feel like it, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Horrifyingly so. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have known that the execution of children is what would bring us to this point? (laughs) He was old enough to be in battle. I don't think, I mean, he was a child in the sense that, you know, that his father did it. But, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. Uh, The citizen score. Look, there's not much specific mention of citizens, apart from the fact that there's no get out of jail free card in this battle. No, it's it's not a great levy to be part of. No, but... On the other hand, there are no specific complaints. Mm. So, I'm, <laughs> are, com- I'm, are complaints permitted under a dictator? Well, he's not always in charge. There's no specific complaints mentioned in the lead up to him being appointed. You know, where the consuls are bickering. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't want to say that the uh, absence of evidence uh, means that it's definitely not happening but oh no i i I don't think it's great i i I would i would wait i would fall on the side of it not being a great time because there's conflict nobody's accepting any excuses 
Rome is victorious, so okay, it could be a lot worse. But, but people definitely have to die for that to happen. It's not like they get out unscathed. Exactly. So what are we going to say? Like a, a three? Yeah, maybe a two or three. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's say a three. That All means right. that Rome has a grand total of 24 golden eagles. They're so wow. close to getting a pass. <laughs> <laughs> One day soon. <laughs> but, you know, that's a massive improvement from our previous episode, which was one. <laughs> yeah, look, they've come a long way in just a year. It's amazing what a couple of great battles and a dictator will do for you. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks so much for telling me all about another glorious posthumous to add to my collection. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing all of these details about 431. I knew so little going in and now I feel so enriched. Don't thank me. Thank Libby. On behalf of Dr. Rad and myself, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our listeners and supporters. As you may know, we have our new book, our first our only currently book coming out very soon it is called rex the seven kings of rome and if you're interested in pre-ordering a copy you'll need to head over to highlands-press.com to secure your copy you'll be supporting an indie publisher which is very much in keeping with what we're all about as well as indie podcasters and in keeping with our thanks to our patrons, we want to send a shout out to the following people as well. Alex, Amanda, Azara, Ben, CW, Dariel, David M, David R, David T, Dendrio, Dorian, Elice, and Erin. Thank you so much for your support and thank you for listening in.